the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Come Together San Diego, the live local show on K-Praise, designed to explore what unity in the body of Christ sounds like within our communities and beyond. Don't just listen to it. Be a part of it. Now, here's your host, Bible teacher, writer, broadcaster, and lover of God, Kaz Taylor. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to another edition of Come Together San Diego. And uh, we have a remarkable show for you, particularly since it's the beginning of a brand new year in the uh, Greco-Roman calendar. (laughs) But what does that mean to us as Judeo-Christian peeps? (laughs) We're going to find out more about that because I brought a longtime friend. His name is Bill Federer. You would likely know of him if you're interested in... uh, Biblical history. He's a history genius. He has uh, uh, an outreach and ministry called the American Minute. Uh, American Minute hi- historian is what I would call him. Bill Federer, how are you? It's great to be with you, Kaz. Thank you, Bill. Hey, you know, we're going to spend some time in this entire uh, two-hour broadcast. We're going to spend some time dealing with uh, what, what uh, different points of view uh, in in sometimes competition with the Judeo-Christian points of view, and sometimes uh, influenced uh, either by or something else is influencing us. We're going to talk more about that. Bill, let's start with uh, uh, just a brief 30-second overview of who you are so other people can know, and then let's start talking about the uh, Caesar's Roman calendar and how that influenced Judeo-Christian points of view. Bill Federer, start out with a brief overview and then jump on in, Bill. Sure. Well, I have written about 25 books, and my website's AmericanMinute.com, and I do a daily radio spot called American Minute, and people can sign up for it where they can get it emailed to them as a daily email with images and pictures. And then I do a TV show called Faith in History that airs on DirecTV on the TCT network, and then I speak across the country wherever I'm invited. I'm happy to come out and give a talk and speak at churches and but the uh, the calendar the early church uh, was really interested in the date of Jesus's resurrection which was the Jewish feast of Passover and but it would switch every year because the Jews used a lunar calendar and matter of fact most of the world used a lunar calendar and the Romans used a lunar calendar and the Roman Empire began to conquer and conquer and conquer. And then you had Julius Caesar. And he wanted to unite the Roman Empire and have a common dating system. And he decided to switch from lunar calendar to a solar calendar. And so this was around 45 BC. And the uh, situation was that the Romans had a ceremonial calendar and then a business calendar and sort of like the Jews would have a civil, uh, you know, a a year and then a religious year and so forth. But the uh, beginning of the year was March 
22nd. That was the spring equinox, and that was the beginning of springtime. And and so the Romans numbered their months. And so March was the first month. Uh, and it was Julius Caesar that moved the beginning of the year to January 1st. But it's interesting because he left. they left some of the months named with the old names. So September, sept is Latin for seven. And October, octagon is an eight-sided mm-hmm. yep. object, right? So October was eight. Nove is Latin for nine. And decimal, December, des is Latin for ten. But since he switched the beginning of the year to January 1st, uh, it left those months with names that didn't correspond. So September, instead of being seventh month, is the ninth month. And October, instead of being the eighth month, is the tenth month, and so forth. Um, Julius Caesar decided to name the old fifth month after himself. It used to be Quintilius, and he renamed it July. And it <laughs> For Julius. 30 days. I get it. And, and it only had 30 days, so he took an, a day from the old end of the year, which was February, and added it to July. Well, the next emperor was Augustus Caesar, uh-huh. and he named a month after himself, August, and it only had 30 days, so he took a day from the old end of the year, February, and added it to August, and that's why July and August have 31, and, and February. February is down to 28. <laughs> if, if the other emperors were, would have continued that, then there probably wouldn't have been any February left. I, I understand. <laughs> boy, oh so, boy, good insights. So, so Julius uh, Caesar go ahead. moves it to January 1st, and he makes it a solar calendar and came up with 365 days. And the other lunar calendars would more or less have 30-day months, and then they would have a sort of season of festival at the end of the year where they sort of make up the the, the odd days to get back to the yes and, and the, the whole heavens worked as a big clock yes well and, you know I, I'm a I'm a, a kind of a buff of uh, biblical days months and years and the the in the Hebrew calendar the the twelfth month is the month of Adar and just like you had February which had a leap year time frame to it there is a a, a a leap year or leap day or leap month perspective from the Jewish calendar periodically the Jewish calendar of Adar has an Adar two which would be the thirteenth month so it's, it's, there there are similar uh, purposes but all to get back to the uh, harvest times being accurate yeah and then the the seasons would sort of shift through the months as the decades and centuries would go on. And so sometimes uh, a, a month would be more or less in the spring, but then it would graduate. And and the the reasoning is that you could sort of view the heavens as a big time clock, keeping track of the eons of time yes. as, as it would progress through. Once you move to a solar calendar, that no longer worked. Now, when the Roman world began to adopt a solar calendar, that was when um, there were 365 days, and Julius Caesar created a leap day every four years. Mm-hmm. And um, now, unbeknownst to him, uh, this leap day would be 11 minutes off a day. <laughs> oh, yes. So, so as the centuries went on, uh, the calendars began to, to not line up. This was a big deal. I mean, you read through early church writings, the, the calendar. I mean, they would have arguments and fighting over the, the calendar. Um, so progressing through. Yes, the, by the way, Bill, we have three minutes left in this segment. 
Okay. So now you have the, the Roman Empire unified under Julius Caesar with the uh, solar calendar, January 1st, the beginning of the year, and then a leap day every four years. And then you have Constantine, and he is the one who won the Battle of the Milvian Bridge in 312 A.D., and he stopped the persecution of Christians with this Edict of Milan in 313 A.D. And then he went on to have a unified Christian Roman Empire. And at the Council of Nicaea, 325 A.D., he wanted to have a common day to unify all of the new Christian Roman Empire, and he wanted it to be Easter, and he wanted it to be on the wanted Easter to be on on a Sunday. Now you think, oh, big deal. Okay, we'll have Easter on a Sunday. Well, wait a second. That was a big deal because it it cut the ties with the Gentile Church from the Jewish Church. So instead of the Christians going to the Jews and say saying, hey, when's Passover this year? Because we're going to celebrate Easter on Passover as Jesus is the Passover Lamb. Uh, instead, they came up with an arbitrary formula. It was the first Sunday after the first full moon after the spring equinox. Yes. And and, and so then they would make these charts and they would, uh, these tables where they would do it for years and years ahead. And after a thousand years, they were 11 days off. So the first Sunday after the first full moon of the spring equinox didn't line up with what was in these tables that they had put together that was part of the church calendar. And that's when you had Pope Gregory Yes. Uh, with his Gregorian calendar, he literally erased 10 days and uh, and then readjusted it. And he added one little bitty twist. And that twist was that you would skip a leap year uh, every 400 years. <laughs> so um, it, it, extremely minor, but it was so accurate. We're still using it today. Oh, my, my. So that was in, in 1582. And, um, they called it the new style. So I've got about one minute left here, Bill. And so since Pope Gregory was Catholic, the Catholic countries would adopt this new style and the Protestant countries used the old Julian calendar. Yes. And so for about a century and a half, you had two different dates that were 10 days off being used in the Catholic and Protestant countries across Europe. Oh my. You know, Bill, Bill, I want to carry this a little bit further in the next uh, segment and spend some time talking about uh, Caesar's Roman calendar and how that influenced the Judeo-Christian values. But you you mentioned the Council of Nicaea in, what would you say, 325 uh, AD, Constantine. That also influenced the Christian points of view, and, and you have different points of view as a result of that. And all of it's tied to calendar truths and semi-truths based on uh, harvest times and things like that. We'll talk more about that, Bill, when uh, you and I talk about uh, how the Caesar uh, Roman calendar influenced uh, Judeo-Christian values plus and minus when we come right back. This is Come Together San Diego, the live local show on K-Praise. More Come Together San Diego is just moments away. Now, more of Come Together San Diego, the new live local show on K-Praise. Here's Kaz Taylor. Welcome back, my friends. Come Together San Diego. This is Kaz, and I have a co-host with me, Bill Federer. He's a remarkable man. He's a, he's a guy whom I've known for a long time. He's uh, uh, kind of involved with a ministry he's been doing for quite some time called the American Minute. 
He's a historian. He's got uh, television, radio, probably every medium you can think of, and he's a remarkable guy. If you want to know what's going on in history today, which was based on history yesterday, (laughs) he's the guy to find and look up. We're talking about, uh, Bill and I are talking about the Caesar's Roman calendar and how it influenced Judeo-Christian values, and, and sometimes on a positive side and sometimes on a negative side. Obviously, we in the last segment, we talked about uh, Constantine and the Council of Nicaea. It is, what, was it 325 or something like that, uh, uh, A.D., Bill? Right, and, and it was uh, the splitting of the Gentile church from the Jewish church. And, and let me just interject, a lot of people feel that that was kind of the insemination or the beginning of... Uh, of uh, uh, anti-Semitism in many ways. You know, people would, some people would embrace the Judeo, the the uh, Jewish Church, and then, but uh, Constantine wanted to flavor it in the in the direction of Gentiles. So a lot of the Jewish flavor was taken out at that point. So uh, a lot of us are trying to reconcile what that means today. I'm going to hand it back to you. But before we do, my listening friend, if you want to communicate with me and find, say, I love the show, I don't love the show, here's what I recommend for the show, things like that, I have a, a website that you can access and you can communicate with me via email using cometogethersandiego at kprz.com. Again, cometogethersandiego at kprz.com. Okay, Bill, uh, continue your insights on the Roman Caesar's Roman calendar and how it influenced positively and perhaps negatively the Judeo-Christian points of view. Right. So the Jewish calendar, it was important because when they had the feast of Passover and they took the Passover lamb, lo and behold, that was the exact day that Jesus was crucified as the Passover lamb. The next day, the Jews celebrated the feast of unleavened bread. Leaven is symbolic of sin. And the Apostle Paul talks about uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and how Jesus took sin out of the world, purged out the old leaven and so forth. And then the day after that, the Jews celebrated the Feast of First Fruits. And this was when the first shoots came out of the ground for the harvest. And uh, they would cut them off and then bring them and wave them before the temple. And lo and behold, the Christians celebrate the resurrection of Christ on the feast of first fruits. So you had this exact, and then 50 days after the Jews celebrated Pentecost. Pentecost mm-hmm. means 50. Pentecota. Was yes, correct. And this was when the Holy Spirit was poured out, and 8,000 people become Christians the first week, and they're from all over the world. Lo and behold, the Jews would have the Jewish. Uh, Visitors come from North Africa and from where Turkey is and from Persia. They would all travel to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost, and that's when the Holy Spirit was poured out. And so the next week, what do they do? They go back around the world, and they spread the gospel. And so the idea is that since the Jews celebrated Pentecost as the beginning of the harvest season, that the Christians celebrate Pentecost as the beginning of the harvest season of souls. Now, though that's in past. Now, the next Jewish holiday is called Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets. And that's when they would blow the trumpets and say, the harvest time is over. Take what you have and come to the temple and bring the, gather the harvest in. And, uh, of course, the Christians are looking forward to the blowing of the trumpets yes. and Christ's return. 
And then the next is the Feast of uh, Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And that's when the high priest would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. And it was this judgment time. And so the, in the biblical uh, timetable, that is thought to be the judgment seat of Christ. And then after that, you have the Jews celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, where they would build booths outside of their house to yes. remember that they wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. And, and that would be looking forward to the future of us dwelling together with God forever in heaven. Yes, and there's that thing called Hanukkah as well, which really, uh, you know, when people are celebrating uh, Christmas uh, in in the Christian perspective, uh, Hanukkah looms, <laughs> and it's significant. Yeah, so uh, the Cyrus of Persia let the Jews go back and rebuild the temple, and then you had Persia being conquered by Alexander the Great, and the... Uh, the, when when the Jews came back from Babylon, you had Ezra, and he's teaching them the law. And so that's the beginning of the Pharisees. When Alexander the Great and the Greeks conquered the Persian Empire, which included the area of Israel, that's when you had the Greeks more or less being the political leaders and appointing the high priest and appointing the Sadducees. And the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in prophecies. And, and they were called Hellenized. Uh, there was, um, you know, Helen of Troy, but yes. the, the Hel- Helen, so, Helen was the the uh, mother of Constantine. Uh, well, now this is this is a different different just, different Helen. This is four centuries before that. Oh, okay. Yeah, this is when the um, uh, Alexander the Great was bringing into Greek culture, and uh, they call it Hellenizing. And so I see. they would bring Greek statues that were naked in, and they would have gymnasiums. Gym is the Greek word for naked. And so the, the gyms were where you had a bunch of, you know, men walking around in their hot tubs and everything, and it was pretty important. <laughs> oh, my. And so, so you began to—and so those Jews that were Hellenized were called Sadducees. Oh, so that's so where the, the Pharisees, Pharisees and the Sadducees came from that we hear of in Scripture. Correct. And so the, the Pharisees were students of the law— and they added on extra traditions. And the Sadducees didn't really believe it. They were doing the temple stuff, but they were more or less political. And so the Bible says, don't add to and don't take take away away from the Scriptures. And in a sense, the Pharisees added on all this extra stuff. And when Jesus came, he's like, look, you should recognize me. I'm the Word made flesh. You've been studying the Word. But all these extra traditions sort of hid it. And then the Sadducees, they didn't believe in their... there's the one story where the Apostle Paul is We've got three minutes arrested, left, Bill. Three minutes. And he notices that there's the Sadducees and Pharisees. And the Pharisees come to Paul's defense. And I said, What if he did see an angel? And what if he did have a supernatural experience? And, and of course, they're pulling Paul in both directions on the floor, and the Romans have to come out and rescue him. Yes. Um, but uh, anyway, so you have the, um, the, the Greeks conquer the Holy Land, and then the Romans conquer the Holy Land, and then Julius Caesar comes up with his Julian calendar with a leap day in January 1st. Then you have Constantine comes along and wants to have Easter on a Sunday, and so he's cutting ties with his Jewish heritage and past yes. and making the church more Gentile. 
Let me intercede intercede here because we have about two minutes left in this segment. I'd like for you to close this because we're going to start a different topic in the next segment. We're going to talk about the United States of America and some of the historical things. So take about a minute and a half or two to close your points of view from this uh, Caesar Caesar Roman calendar and how it influenced Judeo-Christian values. And then we'll jump into a different topic. um, So you had an emperor, Justinian, in 526 A.D., and he has a scholar. He has St. Jerome, who translates the Bible into Latin. But also there's a, a monk named Dionysus Exegus. And yes. everybody dates stuff based on, on the dates of kings, like in the 14th year of the reign of mm-hmm. Tiberius Caesar. And, and so, lo and behold, they were still dating things based to a Roman emperor named Diocletian. And he had persecuted Christians and killed them. And this monk says, why are we still dating stuff to this pagan emperor Diocletian. And so he, in the margin of his books that he's transcribing, counts back the best he could to the birth of Christ, and he writes in the margin, Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord's reign. From which we got A.D. Yeah, and it caught on. And so you have the uh, dating of everything in the world now goes back to the, uh, the birth of Christ. Yes, and uh, and then interesting. Eastern Europe celebrated Epiphany as the holiest day. Western Europe celebrated Christmas, December twenty fifth. They couldn't decide which day was holier. So at another consul, the Consul of Tours in five sixty seven A.D., they decided to make all twelve days from December twenty fifth to January sixth the twelve days of Christmas. Ah, I see. And there, and there, there you holy are. Holy days. Yes, they called them holy days, and as the centuries went on, holy day got pronounced holiday. It's a holiday. Oh, I see. Bill, this is great. You know, uh, I you know I I hope our listening friends really appreciate some of this history here. A lot of times we just go, you know, whatever the calendar says, we celebrate it accordingly. But you know, there's a lot more depth to that, and there's a lot more history behind it. And I want you to know, my listening friend, God is a God of history, and sometimes people can manipulate history to their suiting instead of God's suiting. So he's spending his time trying to bring us back to the proper focus of being a Judeo-Christian believer, which we are. Bill Federer and I are going to talk. Interesting. I, I've got about uh, 10 seconds left in this segment. How do you want to close right. it? Oh, just that it was in 1752 that the Protestant countries like England adopted the Gregorian calendar, and so the whole world now uses the same calendar, but it goes back to the birth of Christ. Very good. Bill Federer, we're going to be talking about about more things, particularly about the United States of America, when we come right back. More Come Together San Diego with Cass Taylor is next on K-Praise. Come Together San Diego with Cass Taylor on K-Praise. Well, hello, my friends, back again with Come Together San Diego and our co-host for this very special broadcast, early year broadcast, Bill Federer. And uh, Bill Federer is a man uh, who uh, is perhaps one of the best Bible historians you could ever hope to find. He has a ministry outreach called The American Minute. He's a historian and a TV show as well, Bill. It's called Faith in History. It's a broadcast. How does one find out more about that? Sure, my website, AmericanMinute.com, and they can click on Media, and it has all those different links to the TV shows. Love it. So, so Bill, let's talk a little bit about the United States of America, because 99.9% of the people listening to Come Together San Diego uh, listen from San Diego County, but are in the United States of America as well. So let's talk a little bit about the United States of America, the historical events which you uh, have studied uh, prolifically and uh, how they were responsible for the forging 
the birth of the United States of America. I'm going to hand the baton to you, Bill Federer. Well, thank you. Well, all of Europe was Catholic, and it was being invaded by Islam. And the king of Spain tries to stop this Islamic invasion. And then Martin Luther starts the Reformation in 1517. And now some German princes say, okay, kingdom of mine, you're all now Lutheran. And so the, the king of Spain, from his point of view, he's got two problems. He's got this Muslim invasion from the outside and this uh, Protestant Reformation dividing Europe on the inside. He tries to stop both and can't. And um, eventually does the Peace of Augsburg of 1555. But during this uh, period, you had kings. And the most common form of government in world history is kings. Yes. Nimrod, Pharaoh, Caesar, Kaiser, Sultan, Tsar. And as the centuries go on, the kingdoms get bigger because with military advancements, kings can kill more people. Instead of killing with a rock, they can kill with a bronze weapon or an iron weapon or a phalanx spear or a scimitar sword or gunpowder. And then with technological advancements, kings can track more people. Uh, I mean, Augustus Caesar wanted to have a worldwide tracking system. It was oh, my. <laughs> he could have had 5G and cell phones and satellites and cameras. He would have tracked them that way. Anyway, so they had kings, and the teaching was Romans 13. you got to submit to your king, right? Well, let's look at it. So in 1572, the king of Spain sends, he stops the Muslims in the Battle of Lepanto. But then instead of freeing the Mediterranean up from Islam, he sends the Duke of Alba to uh, the Netherlands to smash the Reformation. It's called the Spanish Furies, and they go to Antwerp, Holland, the Iron Duke of Alba, and he, like, kills 30,000 people and piles of, of Protestant bodies in the streets. And then you have the Queen of France, Catherine de Medici, in 1572, the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. What's that? Well, she is the, de, the Medici family, and they're from Florence. They're very wealthy, and they marry their kids off to all the monarchs across Europe. She's married to the King of France. He dies. And so Catherine de Medici rules France through her son, and when he's around 13, she marries him to Mary, Queen of Scots from Scotland. And she's mm -hmm. like 12. And, you know, when two years later, um, you know, he dies and she sends Mary, Queen of Scots back to Scotland where she is facing the preaching of John Knox. And anyway, so there's about 15 percent of France is Protestant. It's they're called Huguenots. And there is a leader named Henry Navarre. And so Catherine de' Medici decides she's going to marry her daughter, Margaret de Valois, to Henry of Navarre. A big Paris wedding, and all the Protestants show up. Well, two days after the wedding, she has them pull chains across the streets of Paris so the carriages cannot leave. And then she sends her men house to house, and they kill about 30,000 oh Protestants. Oh, my, my, their my. bodies in the Seine River. And then they begin to go across France and kill as many Protestants as they could find. And then all these Protestants are fleeing France like crazy and so in Switzerland, you have somebody named John Calvin. And he's like, okay, uh, we're supposed to submit to the king, uh, but what do you do when the king actually wants to kill you? Yes. Now, the, 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 I mean, the whole threat of the Protestants was basically uh, standing against the, uh, uh, the king. They're, they're protesting that the king mentality or the king rule. Would that be accurate to say? And that's why they yeah, were identified. And the King's Church. Yeah, the and King's so, Church. Um, so, Major so threat. Calvin writes in 1561, when kings disobey God, they automatically abdicate their worldly power. Yes. 
He writes in his institutes, he says, he who does not make his reign subservient to the divine glory acts the part not of a king, but of a robber. We are subject to men who rule over us, but subject only in the Lord. If they command anything against him, let us not pay the least regard to it. What's he talking about? Parents, the Bible says children obey your parents. But what if the parent tells the kid to kill the neighbor and to sell their body into prostitution and to sell drugs? Is the kid supposed to obey the parent? Oh, no. You obey the parent as long as the parent's telling you to do what lines up with God's word. Yes. And so he applies this to kings. He says, as long as the king is standing up for God's principles and God's word and everything, yeah, fine, obey the king. But if the king is not uh, following God's words, he says the king has exceeded his limits by raising his horn against God, has virtually abrogated his power. And so these Calvinist Protestants called Puritans, um, they begin to study the Bible on how to have a government without a king. And they look back to the first 400 years out of Egypt before King Saul. It's called the Hebrew Republic. Yes. And it's the first time in recorded history where you have millions of people and no king. No king. And this, and this Hebrew Republic worked because every single person was taught the law. I like it. We, we, we can talk more about that in the next segment, too. We have about three minutes here. Uh, Bill, I would like you to, if you'd be so kind, I want you to begin segue from the the distant, the kind of the distant past point of view, and a lot of the things you're saying to right now, my listening friend, I think you identify with some of the restrictions and restraints that are going on in this nation of America today, and I'd love to have you tie that together as well. So we've got about uh, three minutes left in this segment, Bill. How would you like to transition from the United States uh, of America yesterday and how yesterday's history uh, overlays today's history. How would you like to do that transition? You've got about three minutes left. So the king of England looked to the Bible for his authority, but he looked to the King Saul and on period. Uh And the Puritans looked to the pre-King Saul period. This season, this 400 years where there was no king and everyone was taught the law and everybody owned private property. And if you own private property, you can give some of it away. That's called charity. And, and so it was an empowering of the individual. Every man was armed with a weapon on their, on their side and ready at a moment's notice to defend their family. And so in England, you began to have Puritans. And they would study the, this Calvinist teaching of how to have a government without a king. And it went into first the churches. And so you had these congregational churches where the uh, they called Baptists and Congregationalists and eventually Quakers, and, and they would have church meetings without a bishop who was in England. The bishop was appointed by the king, the Archbishop of Canterbury. And, and so there was the king's church, and these Puritans said, no, 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 we're just, each, each church is independent. We don't want, we are a congregational model. And it was these Puritans that were persecuted, these Baptists that were persecuted, these Quakers were persecuted, and they fled. And they fled to America, and they would set up churches, and then in New England, they would take their church government, and they made it their community government. And so in in Boston, they had one building called a meeting house, and that's where the pastor would teach the Bible, and that's where they would gather together and do their city business. I mean, why? The the word synagogue is Hebrew. It means meeting house. Uh That's where the rabbi would teach the law, and that's where they, they, they would do their city business. I mean, why build a separate building just to talk about a different topic? 
And so <laughs> this spread, the congregational church government turned into the congregational community government. And when the revolution started, the British sent over a military governor named Thomas Gage, and he outlawed meeting houses. He says, we don't need the people meeting and discussing things and voting on things. You just follow government mandates. Oh my! I, this is a good Bill. This is a good launching point to get into the next segment. Government mandates. I mean, anybody sense a similar phraseology in these days? Bill, I'm going to ask you in the next. Forgive me for doing this because I've got a, a clock I have to live by here. That's one of the challenges in broadcast, not letting you, Bill Federer, be the fullness of Bill Federer. But um, you've you've gotten us into the United States of America. You've gotten us into um, uh, church independence, and you've got turmoil things that are, are, are going on in the United States of America back then. But the roots of those turmoil issues are showing themselves today. I'd love to have you spend the next segment talking about how yesterday's uh, America and the and the challenges of that in light of today's America. Would you be so kind in the next segment, Bill? Sure. Okay. My listening friend, Bill Federer, remarkable historian, uh, and I, we're going to be back very shortly because we're going to talk about things that have to do with the United States of America then and now when we come right back. This is Come Together San Diego, the live local show on K-Praise. More Come Together San Diego is just moments away. Now, back to Come Together San Diego, the live local show on K-Praise with Cass Taylor. Welcome back, my friends. Come Together San Diego with Bill Federer, uh, a, a maestro of the American Minute and the ministries therein. And he also is the... Uh, President of AmeriSearch Incorporated Printing. He, I mean, he's written volumes of books, and we are so honored to have him give us some history that this new year will help you be edified and know that the things that happened in the past are challenges of today as well. Uh, Bill, thank you so much for spending some time with us here. Um, the 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 topic that I would like for us to talk about now. We're talking about the United States of America. This newborn nation and the pilgrims and the covenant that they had was a very uh, biblical covenant. And then you had different uh, elements coming in, trying to steer uh, religion into a way that other people preferred rather than the biblical religion. I'm going to hand the baton to you because this period of time that we're facing today has very, very many similar uh, denominators in it, you know, the different mandates and things like that that were that were happening back then are happening now. And how do Americans that love Judeo-Christian values, how do we deal with those? I'm going to hand the baton to you, Bill Federer. Well, thank you. So the, kings is, the king is the most common form of government, and finally the king of England became the most powerful king on the planet. The sun never set on the British Empire. He was a globalist, a one-world government guy. He had India, Australia, New Zealand, Hong Kong, British Guyana, Canada. And the, uh, Virginia was founded in 1607, and the pilgrims originally were going to go to Virginia, but they get blown off course in the storm, and they land in Massachusetts. They try sailing south. But off the coast of Cape Cod, it's really shallow. Uh, 3,000 ships have sunk off the coast of Cape Cod. It's called the Graveyard of Ships. The pilgrims almost sink. The captain says, too dangerous to do any more sailing. He goes back to Plymouth Rock and says, everyone off the boat. And the pilgrims (laughs) say, we have a question. Who's going to be in charge? There's no king-appointed person in our group. We were going to go to Jamestown, submit to the king's government. Who's going to be in charge of us? 
they do something unique. They give themselves the authority to start a government. It's called the Mayflower Compact. The word compact means covenant. It says we in the presence of God covenant ourselves together into a civil body politic. This is a church group covenanting itself into a political group, a civil body politic. Right Today there's oh, church, don't be involved in politics. Well, gee, our country was started by a church forming itself into a civil body politic. Why did they do this? To enact just and equal laws that shall be thought most meet or necessary, unto which we promise all due submission. Simple, revolutionary. It was a polarity change in the flow of power. Set it top down, ruled by kings and Caesars and sultans. It's ruled bottom up by we, just us in this little boat. We're going to make the, <laughs> the laws and we're going to agree to submit to them. It was world-changing. In the womb of this little Mayflower is conceived the child of self-government. Yes, and, but, I, but, and, but at the same time, it's obviously the biggest threat to England and the English point of view and the king mentality, right? Yeah, yeah. And so for, for most of history, you have efforts to limit a king's power. Um, the first one was limiting a king by his own words. And you have the Bible stories of, you know, the one king having a party and having his queen Vashti come out and she wouldn't. And he says, I'll never see her again. And then later he wants to see her and his advisors say, King, you can't. You said you wouldn't see her. You can't. You can't break your word. And, and then there's Darius and he gets tricked into signing something that nobody can pray to him for 30 days. And they have to throw Daniel in the lines. Then it says that Darius spent all day long trying to get Daniel off the hook. What was the deal? He he gave his word, and he couldn't break his word. And and um, and so you first limited kings by their own word. Then you would limit kings by past kings' words. And so the Cyrus lets the Jews go back and rebuild the temple. A couple generations later, the neighbors are getting the Jews to stop, and they tell the next emperor, they said, dig back in the records, and you'll see. And sure enough, they did back in the current king honors the past king's words. And so now you're limiting a king by the past kings, and all these past kings' words is called traditions and customs. Then kings are limited by religion, and then kings are limited by their tax collectors. And so a king needed money, and he would let some of his barons, like in England, uh, have an army to go out and collect taxes. But King John in 1215 A.D., he would arbitrarily get rid of these kings if he didn't like them, and so they banded together. And one day they surrounded the king on the fields of Runnymede and made him sign the Magna Carta that says you can't arbitrarily take away our land and throw us in jail. If you do, the other 24 of us will, will gang up together on you. And so this, But there's this effort of how do you limit a king? How do you limit a king? And then America comes along, and we cut the umbilical cord, and we say, we're just flat out not going to have a king. Matter of fact, we're going to make the people the king. The word citizen is Greek. It means co-king. It's a, it's a flip in the flow of power. Set it top down, it's ruled bottom up. And so the pilgrims call this a covenant form of government. It's like a triangle. You get rights and blessings from God, and you voluntarily take care of your neighbor because you're doing it as unto God. Yes. Right? And that, we, yeah. in the, we in the United States of America, well, oftentimes we don't even have a clue of uh, the, the British point of view or some of the other nations' point of view of governance that are tied to kings and kingdoms in that light. We see Jesus as our king, but uh, but the the whole theology is we one nation under God. And so early on in the forming of the United States of America, we had the conflict of the, a, a king mentality versus the United States of America, we the people mentality. And... Uh, I want you to continue. We've got about four more minutes left in this segment, and then we'll transition into the 
intervention of socialism, (laughs) which we're seeing today as well. So handing the baton back to you, Bill. So the Pilgrim pastor, John Robinson, said we are knit together as a body in covenant of the Lord. So we hold ourselves tied to care for each other's good. And then you had Puritan founder John Winthrop in Massachusetts. He says this love among Christians is a real thing, not imaginary. He says, we are a company professing ourselves fellow members of Christ. We are knit together by this bond of love. We must make one another's condition our own. Rejoice together, mourn together, labor and suffer together. We shall find that the God of Israel is among us. And so it's a voluntary thing. You get rights and blessings from God, and you voluntarily care for your neighbor because you're doing it as unto God. So there goes the government mandates are uh, unnecessary because we're doing it based on biblical conscience. Yeah. (laughs) Novel idea. (laughs) So socialism is counterfeit Christianity. And it's the difference between the word voluntary and involuntary. So in socialism, the government involuntarily takes away your property and redistributes it. You know, the early church, the believers voluntarily sold their property and laid the money at the feet of the apostles, the church. They didn't have the government take away their property and laid at the feet of Pilate. Um, and, and so whenever the church does something, it's called disinterested benevolence. You're helping people just because you're doing it for no other reason than to help them. And whenever the government helps people, it's always an exchange for something. Like you're in Egypt and you need food and the government comes along and says, we'll give you grain, but it's an exchange for your cattle, your land, your children, your lives. Oh, my, my, and, my. And so when the children of Israel went into the promised land, every family was given property. If you own property, you can accumulate stuff. The Bible called that being blessed. And then you can give away some of your stuff. The Bible called that charity. Well, Lenin said socialism is a transition phase to communism. And Karl Marx says communism can be summed up in one sentence, abolition of private property. So if, if you don't own anything, how can you be charitable? How can you give away what you don't have? Yes. What, are you going to break the law and become a thief, right? No, God entrusts you with stuff and then gives you opportunities to manifest on the outside the love of God that's on the inside. And so socialism is counterfeit Christianity and the differences between the word voluntary and involuntary. You know, I bring up in the book I wrote on socialism that God gives commands to five groups, individuals, families, business, church, and government. Individuals are commanded to take care of the poor, right? Uh, Family commands are relational. Husbands love your wives, children submit to your parents. Business commands are do an honest day's work, don't hold back wages. The church is commanded to take care of the poor, and they did with orphanages and medical clinics over the years. There's no command for the government to take care of the poor. The command to the government's the shortest, protect the innocent, punish the guilty. There's no command (laughs) for the government to be involved in health care or education. What's happened is the government has usurped the church's role. And whenever the government gets involved, it benefits the people that are in government. Yes, right. The, the power, and, the power people, and not the citizenry. Yeah. So uh, Plato's the one that came up with the idea of everybody owning everything in common. But if you think it through, somebody has to be in the government handing out the common stuff. Yes. And they're always going to be tempted to pass a little extra to their family and friends on the side and hold back from someone they don't like. And before you know it, it gets discretionary. Oh my. And the saying is. The saying is, he who holds the purse strings has the power. So That's every right. attempt at everybody owning everything equally always ends up with a deep state bureaucracy passing out favors to their friends with the most corrupt guy at the top. 
My, my, Bill, we're going to spend the, the next couple segments tying into this m- more specifically, but boy, you have identified where we are today. My listening friend, we're with Bill Federer. He's a Bible historian, a uh, remarkable man, and uh, we're going to spend the next couple segments talking about uh, the Judeo-Christian values in the United States of America, but how socialism wants to embed itself and take the place of Uh, Christianity. You called socialism a counterfeit Christianity. We're going to deal with that further in the next segments when we come right back. This is Come Together San Diego, the live local show on K-Praise. More Come Together San Diego is just moments away. Come Together San Diego with Kaz Taylor on K-Praise. Welcome back, my friends, with Bill Federer, my co-host for this entire broadcast, 5 to 7 p.m. Pacific time. Bill Federer is a remarkable man. I've known him for a number of years. I've known him in person. I've known him at at different functions we've met. And also, he's been on various radio shows of mine throughout the decades. So, Bill, we have quite quite a history back there. American Minute historian, my friend Bill Federer. I'm so glad to have you on the air with me, Bill. One, before, well, mine, Kaz. before we start, why don't you give a quick uh, overview of ways people can find out more about you, and then we'll just jump on in. Great topics. Thanks. AmericanMinute.com is my website, AmericanMinute.com. I send out a free daily email, and then they can also view a lot of the videos and podcasts and interviews that I did, as, as well as purchase books. Uh, one of my wife did a cookbook with all the <laughs> holidays and the history of the holidays, and the, her favorite recipes for the holidays. And, oh, my. And we did did one on miracles in American history where there's a crisis. They pray and things turn around on um, the history of George Washington Carver and um, just lots of fascinating stuff. But the one on the history of how religion impacted America's founding is one of the things I highlight. Wow, wow. You, you talk about a book that talks about uh, how prayer causes things to turn around. I appreciate that. My listening friend, you and I know as we look at the news and we have in our heart of hearts an understanding of how uh, Judeo-Christian principles are being violated today, a lot of those violations are tied to a thing called socialism, which is a thing that is tied to communism. And uh, I'll tell you what, my listening friend, we need to understand the history of the past because the history of the past is a forewarning of the things of the present and of the future, and I have Bill Federer here with me to share some insights on that. Um, he's taken us from the Roman point of view early, early, early on, and the calendar associated with that, into America and America's strengths and shortcomings and people that wanted to take the king mentality and uh, interject that in in the face of a, a, a pilgrim point of view uh, and and freedom based on Scripture and personal freedoms. And, and Bill, I, I love where we are right now uh, in this conversation because you're getting us to where the nation of America is right now and the the influence of socialism, whom they call uh, counter, what other people call counterfeit Christianity. And that really speaks to me. That's kind of where we are today. I would love for, to have you continue that discussion and the transition, the threat of socialism against this uh, Judeo-Christian government that includes the Constitution of the United States of America. Bill Federer, handing it to you. Well, thanks. Well, uh, there's four steps between covenant and socialism. So 
the pilgrims had the covenant form of government. That was the first 400 years out of Egypt before King Saul. And that's where you get some blessings from God, and you voluntarily take care of your neighbor because you're doing it as unto God, like a triangle. Right? You get rights from God, and you're fair to your neighbor because you're doing it as unto God. The century after the pilgrims and Puritans, you have the Age of Enlightenment in Europe. This was the beginning of the scientific revolution with Isaac Newton discovering laws of gravity and laws of optics and Kepler discovering laws of planetary motion and Robert Boyle discovering laws of pressure. And and some theologians said, well, gee, maybe God made everything with laws. And like a guy makes a clock that follows all these gears and sets it on a shelf and then goes for a walk. Maybe God made everything, but he's not involved. He's distant. He's impersonal. He's uninvolved. The, the ultimate of this is God is a force in the universe that's out there and is impersonal. And so they, uh, during this time, the covenant turned into social contract. And the century after the Age of Enlightenment, you have the French Revolution, where social contract with a distant God turns into social contract with no God. You get your rights from the state, you're accountable to the state. The state decides if you have any worth. And the century after the French Revolution, you have Marxism and socialism, where the state is God, and the state decides if you're going to live or die. And so you had uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who's called the father of the French Revolution. He says, if the state says to an individual, it's expedient for the state that you should die, that individual ought to die, because his life is a gift made conditionally by the state. Oh, my. Right? So if there's no God, where do your rights come from? Uh, The state. You know, Hegel was the German socialist who taught Karl Marx, and Hegel says the state is God walking on earth. We must worship the state. All the worth which the human being possesses, he possesses only through the state. So if there's no God, the state decides. And so in Germany, uh, a century or so after Hegel, you have the Nazis, the National Socialist Workers' Party. And in 1933, it said the National uh, Socialist Workers Party, the Nazis, Ministry of Justice, authorized physicians to end the sufferings of incurable patients. No life still valuable to the state will be wantonly destroyed. So as long as the state thinks that you're valuable to it, then you get to live. But if not, well, here you have the socialist communist leader Pol Pot in Cambodia, And he said, to keep you is no benefit, to destroy you is no loss. He kills a third of his country in the Khmer Rouge, the the killing fields. I mean, uh, it's like your your worth, instead of you being made in the image of God and you have worth because of that, there is no God. And your worth is dependent on how you can help big government get bigger. And if you're not helping big government get bigger, the big government sees you as a threat. It yes, an enemy. Big government power to crush you. Yes. And so Hegel said the state recognizes no authority but its own. It acknowledges no abstract rules of good and bad. Uh, what's an abstract rule of good and bad? You mean like the Ten Commandments? Yeah, the state <laughs> doesn't recognize that. Yes. It's just a power grab by the state. There is no right. There is no wrong. You can kill babies. You can kill anybody. You can do anything. You can do voter fraud as long as the state gets more power. It's the, it's their good. And so Saul Linsky's uh, attitude. So President Dwight Eisenhower said, in many lands, the state claims to be the author of human rights. If the state gives rights, it can and inevitably will take away those rights. 
He said the founding fathers had to refer to the creator in order to make the revolutionary experiment make sense. In other words, we had to claim we had rights from a source higher than the government. And that this God made everyone equal. And this God says there is no respect of persons in judgment. Rich or poor, everyone's to be treated the same. Male, female, all made in the image of the creator. This is the beginning of the concept of equality. But if you get rid of this God and your rights come from the state, well, this what the state giveth, the state can taketh away us. <laughs> and, um, yeah, and when when you say the state, you're you're, you're speaking in even a broader term than a, a state like California or Arizona or you know Washington. You're talking about the federal government more specifically, are, are you not? Yeah, yeah, human government. And so in, in Europe, you had kings, but but basically, uh, socialism and communism is kings. Mm-hmm. Every socialist communist country, you wind up with a party that rules everything and with the most corrupt guy at the top, uh, a dictator. Yes. And we're moving in that direction. And it is um, uh, something we need to wake up to and realize how unique what we have in America is. But this transition, uh, you know, the French Revolution, they had a motto, liberty, equality, fraternity. Sounds nice. But it doesn't work. Liberty is experienced individually. Fraternity is their word for socialism. Mm. The fraternity, the club, the group, the, the state, the mob. And equality can be understood two ways. In America, it was equal treatment before the law. In France, it was everyone having an equal amount of stuff, equity. Yes. And so if the state, the fraternity, the club, the insiders think you have too much stuff, it can trample your individual liberty, confiscate all your stuff, redistribute it to all their friends, and kill you. And there's no God that you can appeal to that they're violating because you get your right from the mob, yes. the state. Bill, and, Bill, um, Bill, I want to continue this. We're out of time in this segment. But I I think you've hit a, a chord that our listening friends are going, wait a minute, I'm hearing things that are in in influencing this nation today, and I'd like you to spend some time in the next segment continuing this conversation about the threat of socialism slash communism, but also uh, ways in history to circumvent these things. We're going to talk more about that, if that's okay with you, Bill Federer, in the next segment. Sure. Okay. My listening friend, I hope you appreciate the honor of having Bill Federer on this first part of the year to give us some insights of where we are but where we need to be. We're going to talk more about those things when Bill Federer and I come right back. More Come Together San Diego with Cass Taylor is next on K-Praise. Now, more of Come Together San Diego, the live local show on K-Praise. Here's Cass Taylor. Well, welcome back to Come Together San Diego. Bill Federer, he... uh, continues his exploration of the dangers of socialism from a Judeo-Christian point of view. Uh, I want to talk, have him talk a little bit more about the, the dangers of, uh, of uh, socialism. You identified it as a, a counterfeit Christianity. And, you know, we in America, Bill, we've, we've presumed to have this freedom and really didn't realize that we need to make our stand in certain places uh, to... to uh, protect those freedoms and we've kind of let because of our you know we're just so innocent and trusting uh we've kind of let our privileges of 
Judeo-Christian values and the Constitution slide, and that's where we are today. And I, I'm really excited about the next few segments because you're going to help us uh, identify some of the ways to circumvent these things. And I hope you feel like it's not too late for the United States of America, Bill, because we need to hear what you have to say. I'm going to hand the baton back to you, Bill Federer, as you uh, further your discussion about the dangers of socialism and what that tends to and how we, with a Judeo-Christian point of view, can circumvent those things using history as our guide. Bill Federer. Well, thank you, Kaz. Well, as I mentioned, the most common form of government in world history is kings, Pharaoh, Caesar, Kaiser, Sultan, Tsars, and democracies and republics are attempts to take the power of the king and give it to the people. And uh, the difference between those is uh, in a pure democracy, every citizen had to be at every meeting every day to talk about every issue. Yes. So there were 6,000 6, citizens in Athens, and they would all gather together in their agora marketplace and decide what's going to happen in the city and divide up responsibilities. But it could only grow as large as a city because you literally had to be present every single day. And so they call them city states. Well, republics could grow larger because you could take care of your family and your farm and have someone in your place that goes to the market every day and talks politics. They are your representative. Easy to remember, the REP and Republic is basically the REP and representative. So Republican form of government is representative. You're still the king. You've just subcontracted uh, to get somebody to go and show up in your place. And um, so if democracies and republics are attempts to take the power of the king and give it to the people, what if the king wants the power back? Does he just go to the people and say, hi, I want to be king. Give me control of your life. (laughs) Do the people say, oh, okay, sure, here you go. Is that how it happens? Oh, no. So there's, so there's two ways in which a king can take the power back. Fear, when people are afraid, they will quickly trade away their freedom in exchange for security. And the second is free stuff. The king's so nice, he gives you free stuff until you get dependent. And if you want to continue the free stuff, you have to incrementally give up your freedom. Sort of like a drug dealer takes over a neighborhood two ways. He can come in with guns and get everybody in fear and they submit to the mob and surrender their freedom. Or the drug dealer is so nice, he's giving away free drugs until you get hooked. And then you want some more free drugs? You're going to have to sell yourself into prostitution, right, and and get violent and and submit to this uh, drug dealer. Um, And so it's a front door, back door approach. And so a hunter catches animals through guns and bait. Guns is, you go out there and shoot them. The bait is interesting, how you can catch pigs in the wild. And they say you, you put a post in the ground and throw some corn down. And the pigs come and eat the corn and ignore the post. Second day, there's two posts in the ground and some corn. And the pigs come and eat the corn. Next day, there's three posts. Next four, five, six. And you begin to put these posts in like a little semicircle. And then you begin to close in the circle until finally there's just one opening. And the pigs come, they they walk through the little opening, and they eat in the corn, and you shut the gate, and you caught yourself some wild pigs. And and so the idea is that you can get people to uh, be communists and socialists by coming in with tanks, or you can do the backdoor approach where you get them dependent. And that's called the Great Reset. 
It's called the Great Society Welfare State that Lyndon Johnson put in place. It actually, there's two Columbia University professors, Richard Cloward, Francis Piven, so they call it the Cloward-Piven strategy. They were socialists in New York, and they said uh, that you can't have communism take over America with guns. you got to do this backdoor approach. And so they came up with this concept that you crater the economy on purpose, and you raise the price of everything on purpose, and you, inf- you, you have the government make trillions of dollars on purpose, and it dilutes your purchasing power so that the people can buy less and less and less until finally the people can't afford to live, and they go to the government and say, help. Yes. And the government says, here's help. We'll give you a welfare check. Well, we'll give you, still take care of your medical expenses. We'll do this, that, this, that. And it's all great at first. And then the government says, oh, uh, for you to continue to get this money, uh, you've got to get this shot. Oh, and for you to continue to get this money, you've got to give us your biometric information. And for you to continue to get this money, you've got to uh, submit to this and, and, and change your behavior. And you don't speak out against the government. And, and you incrementally give up your freedoms. Uh, in order to continue this free stuff. Oh, my. And Bill, would you say, as you look at uh, this nation and how you've identified that, would both those two elements that take us away are, from our biblical and Judeo-Christian values are fear and intimidation, but also free stuff. Um, that's really well, kind of a one-two punch, and I, I see that one-two punch happening in America so clearly today. And uh, I, I hope we're, in the next segments we're going to talk about the solutions for making our stand, you know, obviously voting has power and uh, the Judeo-Christian values and unity in the body of Christ have power as well. But I'll tell you what, Bill, as I look at the nation today, and I know our listening friends are going, our nation has slipped away and it's really kind of slipped away more obviously the past few years. So we've got about... uh, four or five minutes left in this segment. I love what you're saying about this is the socialist value, which leads to communist value, which leads to one world governance that does not include Judeo-Christian values, fear and free stuff. We've got about three minutes in this segment, and then we'll launch into uh, further discussions. So I'm handing it back to you for this three minutes, Bill Federer. Yeah. And so one of the key things is they have to get rid of the Judeo-Christian values. Yes. Um, there was um, a socialist in Europe named Antonio Gramsci. And Antonio Gramsci uh, was telling Stalin and the others that you can't defeat the West with tanks. You got to rot it from within. Antonio Gramsci was arrested, put in prison where he dies in the 1930s. But he writes his prison notebooks. And he says that you that Judeo-Christian values have held sway in, in Western Europe for 2,000 years. He says, before socialism can take over, you have to destroy the Judeo-Christian faith. And why? Because Judeo-Christian faith gives birth to this concept of the individual, that you have rights as an individual because you personally are made in the image of God. All other governments and belief systems, it's based on a group, right? You have to belong to this group in order to be saved. You have to belong to this group 
to uh, in in India they have a caste system and the highest group are called the Brahmins and they're near divinity and the lowest group are called the Untouchables and and if you're born into the Untouchable group uh, the Dalits uh, no matter what you do you you can't cha- change your worth you're always going to have to clean sewers um, in China they had the 100 family names and if you were part of that insider group you're on top if not you're a Jajamin which means base people um, in uh, Islam you have the um, uh, the Muslim male, and he's uh, on the top of the group, and women are less, and then infidels are less than that, and women infidels are less than that, and your worth is dependent on your group. And um, uh, and so in the, the Communist Party, if you're a Communist Party member, you're on the insider group, and if you're not, you're out. And America got away from that, but we're moving back into that. It's called intersectionality. It's called critical race theory where it, it is saying that your worth as a person is based on what group you're yes, in. Yes, yes. And I, the more minority groups you're in, the more your worth goes up. Right? So if you're maybe an overweight person of a minority race and your sexual views are, are different, then you're, you're in all these different groups and you become a, a more important person, oh where my. if you're not in those groups, your worth goes down. My, my. We're going to talk yeah. more about that in the next segment. My listening friend, I hope you're hearing some uh, familiar things that uh, Bill is sharing with you. He's sharing past history, but you know the Bible talks about that which was in Ecclesiastes one nine. It says that which was is, and that which is is to come because there's nothing new under the sun. Not only as the uh, are the Judeo Christian values uh, uh, sustainable and true, but also the enemy's intent to take them away is true as well. Bill Federer and I are going to talk more about that in these last two segments of Come Together San Diego. So do not go away. Bill Federer and I will be right back. This is Come Together San Diego, the live local show on K-Praise. More Come Together San Diego is just moments away. Now more of Come Together San Diego, the new live local show on K-Praise. Here's Cass Taylor. Welcome back, my friends. Come Together San Diego. I knew at the beginning of this year it would be very, very helpful for you because, you know, you're looking at the news and you go, oh, this is not what America's supposed to be. Well, you're right. And guess what? God has created you to stand for his Judeo-Christian values and circumvent the powers and plans of the enemy. Bill Federer is here to share with us some historical insights of what has happened in the past and how we need to be aware of those and stand our ground in the present and future. Bill Federer, thanks so much for joining us. We've got two segments left. One of the things that you mentioned in the earlier segments was the plan of socialism, communism, and so forth is to defeat, to defeat America from within. And as long as there is a resolute Judeo-Christian value that's persistent in America, <clears throat> their job is not only difficult, but it can be impossible. So I want to have you speak to that a little bit more in this segment, and we close the show on giving some solutions to this, as you can blend some of the solutions into this segment as well. Bill Federer. So we talked about that the two ways in which a king can take power away from the people, fear and free stuff. Let's look at the fear. How do you get people into fear? You have to sow discord. Mm. And so... Uh, the Bible says in Proverbs twenty nine twenty five, the fear of man bringeth a snare, a trap. Snare is a trap. And all through the Bible, God says, fear not, fear not. Well, what's fear? Uh, you know, in Proverbs 6, 
it says, the Lord hates he that soweth discord. And then, of course, Psalms 133, it says, how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. So you have unity, you have discord. For there to be unity in heaven, for there to be peace in heaven, there can only be one will. And it's God's will. And it's a good will. He made you. He loves you. He wants to bless you. And the moment there's two wills, um, there's war. Right? We pray the Our Father, Our Father, not my will, you know, uh, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And even Jesus was sweating drops of blood and said, Father, not my will, but yours, right? And, um, and so there can only be one will in heaven, and lo and behold, the devil comes along. And the word devil in Greek is diabolos, and it means to divide. And Satan comes along with his will. And you read in Ezekiel and Isaiah, it says, I will ascend to the Most High. I will put my throne above the throne of God. I will be like the Most I will, I will. He's got his will, and it's not God's will. Yes. And so there's war in heaven. And so he's cast out. And so then he goes into the garden, and he sows division. And then he gets uh, Adam to blame Eve and Cain to kill Abel. And then one of the interesting stories is that first 400 years out of Egypt, when Israel was a republic, there was no king yet. And it was being invaded by 100,000 Midianites. And Gideon is raised up to stop them. And uh, afterwards, they go to Gideon and they say, uh, you and your sons be our kings. And he said, no, the Lord is your king. All right, so good for Gideon. But Gideon has an illegitimate son named Abimelech. Mm. And he wants power. And so what does he do? He sows discord. And so the situation is he goes to the town of Shechem. And he does identity race politics. He does critical race theory to sow discord. He says, is it better for you that all the sons of Gideon reign over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And his brethren spake of him, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, he is our brother. So he's appealing to them on a fleshly level. And then they go to the city treasury, and they take money to hire rioters, protesters, Antifa, BLM-type people. And, two, oh it says, and they gave him three score and ten pieces of silver out of the house of Balbareth, wherewith Abimelech hired vain and worthless persons which followed him. And they went into his father's house at Ophrah, and they slew his brother, and they committed violence. Mm. And then the men of Shechem made Abimelech king. So here you have a nation completely at peace. All the enemies are defeated. I mean, 100,000 of them. There is no threat to Israel at all from the outside. But, but from the within, inside, yes. You have this Abimelech doing what? Critical race theory, identity race politics. I'm one of you, and, and the other ones aren't treating you right. And, and then we just take money, hire rioters, create violence. And in this confusion, he seizes power. Now, my, my. the Hebrew Republic would have ended here rather than a century later with King Saul had not somebody threw a millstone over the wall and it killed Abimelech. But um, this concept of sowing discord uh, 500 years ago, Italy, was a bunch of city-states, Venice, Genoa, Naples, Florence, Siena, and they always fought. And so a guy named Machiavelli writes a book called The Prince, and he says the end justifies means. In other words, if a, if a prince wants to unify Italy, it's a good end. And so if the prince conquers one of these city-states, but his ultimate goal is to unify Italy, then there won't be any of this infighting. So the end justifies the means. The means. Yes. And so if a prince wants to conquer a city-state and it does not want to be conquered, they would hate him. But if this prince pays criminals like Antifa, like BLM, like Abimelech did, vain and worthless persons, to, to create 
crises to set buildings on fire and to kill cows and smash windows. The people will cry out for help and the prince will come in and get rid of the very criminals he bribed to create the mess. Nobody will know the better for it. And everyone will praise the prince as a hero. So it's good marketing. You create the need and fill it. You go around the back of the house and set it on fire, and then you, you go around, around the front of the house and put it out. And sell a fire <laughs> yeah, sell them a fire extinguisher, and they'll pay anything for it and even thank you for being there. So it's called Machiavellianism, where you create or capitalize on a crisis to consolidate control. And then you fast forward to Germany in the 1800s, and it was a bunch of kingdoms, Bavaria, Saxony, Prussia, and they always fought. And a guy named Hegel comes along, and he says, hey, um, if one, if we can unify uh, Germany, then it'll stop this infighting. And so uh, Hegel's theory of dialectics, it takes Machiavelli, it takes them, like turns it into a nice, neat equation. And so dialectics is a triangle. One corner is a thesis. The opposite corner is an antithesis or antithesis. Yes. And the top corner is a synthesis. It sounds complicated, but it's not. You start off with the status quo. You create a problem that's real bad, and everybody will settle for your answer. That's half as bad. Can you can you say the word C O V I D as in in, in that in that same uh, sentence? I mean, would that be valid? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and rioting and stirring up. So, and then that synthesis becomes the new starting point thesis. You create another problem that's real bad, and everybody will panic and fear and give up some more of their freedoms to settle for an answer that's just half as bad. Then you create another problem that's real bad. Everybody panics in fear and surrenders some more of their freedom to the government and settles for an answer that's just half as bad. And every time they settle, a little rights go from the individual to the government. So it's like no matter what the crisis is, the answer is always give up a little more of your freedom to solve it. Give up a little more of your freedom to solve it. And so Karl Marx called this critical race theory. And you would go into a country and observe all the groups, economically, religiously, ethnically, and then you would label them as victims or oppressors, haves and have-nots. Then you would stir them up to riot, and you'd stir up the proletariat against the bourgeois, which is the working class against the business owners. They'd store up the poor against the rich, the blacks against the whites, the Catholics against the Protestants, the Muslims against the Christians, even the Hutus against the Tutsis in the Congo and Rwanda. My, my. I mean, the people in the Congo and Rwanda saw themselves as one, but the German and Belgian colonizers come in and measure them and their heads and their features, and they would say, you're a Hutu and you're a Tutsi, and then stirred them up to segregate from each other and then commit violence against each other, and in this confusion— the colonizers could come in and seize control. That's right. And All so, the time they're they're posturing as the answer to the problem and, and the solution, when in reality they're the ones that created the problems and so that they could provide a solution each step of the way, making people less uh, independent and more interdependent upon uh, a ruling class, so to speak. We've got about a minute and a half left in this segment, and we're going to be launching in the next segment that uh, putting some conclusions to this, but how would you like to spend a minute closing this segment, Bill Federer? <laughs> so Patrice, Patrice Cullors, Alicia Garza, and Opal Tometi, uh, for, they were transsexual activists. They created something called Black Lives Matter. And they said, we are trained Marxists. 
and which means you categorize people into groups and pit them against each other to create destabilizing crisis so you get everybody into fear and then the government can seize control. Castro said the revolution needs the enemy. The revolutionary needs his antithesis, which yes. is a counter-revolutionary. And if enemies were lacking, they had to be fabricated. So you have to get people into fear. But if there's no enemy, you have to create an enemy, like a, like a white supremacist. Like, oh, January 6th, people wanting to break into the Capitol. Oh, or they want to create, forgetting the fact that the FBI uh, had their Ray Epps guy there who said he orchestrated the whole thing. I mean, forget all that. They, they want to create a crisis so that they can get everybody in fear so that they can have an excuse to take away all the freedoms and they get everybody to set for having less freedom than they had before. Bill, Jesus Bill, Bill, let's, let's, let's pause there because I have to take a break. Having less freedom than they had before. My listening friend, as you view the news and in your heart of hearts, you know our Judeo-Christian rights are being ebbed away from us. And um, there's solutions for this, and this taking a godly stand. Bill Federer is with me. He's got one more segment left. We're going to talk about how we reestablish our Judeo-Christian principles in the light of this terrible contradiction when Bill Federer and I come right back. This is Come Together San Diego, the live local show on Praise. More Come Together San Diego is just moments away. Come Together San Diego with Kaz Taylor on Praise. Welcome back to the last segment of Come Together San Diego. Bill Federer, my co-host for this entire two-hour broadcast, has really laid it out very nicely for us to understand not only the, the plans of God and his kids, but the plan of the enemy, Satan, the devil, Lucifer, in taking those things away. And just as God has a specific plan for our best the enemy has a specific plan for our worst, but he can't do it if we maintain our Judeo-Christian values and faith, because God honors that. And so his intent is to take these things away, and so division, or God's intent, is to bring unity of the body of Christ, but the body of believers, and therein find God's power and empowerment. Bill Federer, we've got the last segment here. I'm going to hand it to you to... Uh, Talk a little bit more about the sowing of division, which is one of major enemy tactic, but also we need to spend some time in the close here uh, giving some solutions because there are God-given solutions. Would you say so, Bill Federer? Oh, definitely. And, <laughs> you know, Jesus said a house, a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. And so the idea is that they want to get the kingdom to divide against itself. Uh, Lincoln, during the Civil War, gave a famous speech, a house divided against itself cannot stand. What what their tactic is, is to introduce an autoimmune disease into the body politic. What's Say that again. So, my listening friend, listen to what he's saying. It's an abstract, but it's a literal as well. The enemy introduces what, Bill Federer? A, a, an autoimmune disease into the body politic. So what's an autoimmune disease? It's where your own immune system gets weaponized and begins attacking your own organs. You have a war going on inside of your body. It's attacking itself from the inside. And so that's what critical race theory is. It breaks the country into groups and gets them to attack each other. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt, November 1st, 1940, said, whoever seeks to set one nationality against another seeks to degrade all nationalities. Whoever seeks to set one race against another seeks to enslave all races. So-called racial voting blocks are the creation of designing politicians 
who professed to be able to deliver them on election day. FDR said, 1942, remember the Nazi technique that race against race, religion against religion, prejudice against prejudice, divide and conquer. Uh, Even Charles Barkley, an NBA player in CBS Sports Panel in April 2021, said, man, I think most white people and black people are great people. I really believe that in my heart. But I think our system is set up where our politicians, whether they're Republicans or Democrats, are designed to not make us like each other so they can keep their grasp of money and power. They divide and conquer. We're so stupid following our politicians. Their only job is, hey, let's make the whites and blacks not like each other. Let's make the rich people and the poor people not like each other. Let's scramble the middle class. I truly believe this in my heart. And so you have somebody named Saul Alinsky that was riding around with Al Capone's hitmen in Chicago, Frank Nitti, and saw how all you had to do was kill a few people and smash a few windows and get everyone in the neighborhood into fear, and then they would panic and surrender their freedom for security to the mob. And so he decided to apply this to politics. And Saul Alinsky wrote in his Rules for Radicals, the first step in community organization is community disorganization. Disruption of the present organization is the first step. The organizer's first job is to create the issues or the problems. The organizer must first rub raw the resentments of the people of the community. An organizer must stir up dissatisfaction and discontent, fan the latent hostilities of many of the people to the point of overt expression. The organizer polarizes the issue and leads his forces into conflict. He must search out controversy for unless there is controversy, the people are not concerned enough to act. And in the front of Solinsky's book, he has an acknowledgement to Lucifer. Yes. He says, lest we forget an over-the-shoulder acknowledgement to the first radical known to man who rebelled against the establishment and did it so effectively, he at least won his own kingdom, Lucifer. We started off talking about how Lucifer sowed discord in heaven. And then he sowed discord in the garden with Adam and blaming Eve and Cain killing Abel. And then he sowed discord with Abimelech, the illegitimate son of Gideon, getting the people of Shechem to divide and to kill the half-brothers of the sons of Gideon. And then we, we talked about this Machiavelli, the sowing of discord so that the prince can come in and unify Italy. And then uh, Hegel talked about this dialectic where you sow discord and create a problem that's really bad so people panic and fear and surrender their freedom to the government to settle for an answer that's just half as bad. And then one of the tactics that goes right along with this is called psychological projection. What's that? Sigmund Freud coined the term. It's where attackers blame the victim. Blame shifting. Oh, my. My, my, my. Is that running rampant these days? Man, oh, man. Thank you, Bill. So look. So little kids do it, right? I didn't start the fight, you did. Or a cheating spouse will accuse the faithful spouse of being unfaithful. And so this has gotten into politics, where the guilty party will accuse the innocent party of the very crime the guilty party is guilty of. It's the Jesse Smollett hate crime hoax, right? Here he was planning the hate crime against himself so he could blame innocent people he didn't like. David Axelrod was Obama's campaign manager, and on April 19th, 2010, on NPR radio, David Axelrod said, in Chicago, there was an old tradition of throwing a brick through your own campaign office window and then calling a press conference to say you've been attacked. 
blaming your opponent for doing it. Then yes. the opponent has to go on the defensive and say, no, I didn't, no, I didn't, no, I did it. And the media keeps repeating it. And Nancy Pelosi called it the wrap-up smear. Pelosi says, it's a diversionary tactic. You demonize and then you do the wrap-up smear. You smear somebody with false falsehoods. And then it's reported in the press. Right? Oh so you do the crime, but you blame the innocent people. You know, one of the... Uh, We've got about four minutes here, left, Bill, for your information. Harry Reid was lied about Romney not paying his taxes. And then after the election, Time Magazine was interviewing Harry Reid. And they said, you lied. He did pay his taxes. And Harry Reid said, yeah, I know, but it worked. <laughs> no, 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 that's exactly right. right. <clears throat> Bill, I'd like to spend the next three minutes or so offering our listeners some solutions. If if you haven't seen the things that Bill has identified in past history in today's uh, happenings, then you're a bit blinded, my friend. But there's also a solution, and it is really tied to your relationship vertically with the Lord and horizontally with your brethren. Uh, take about two minutes or three to finalize this, because we have to go uh, in about three minutes. Yeah, well, I'd want to throw in Potiphar's wife. She accused Joseph of lusting after her when she was lusting after him. And even <laughs> Nero set fire to Rome and blamed the Christians. Yes. And so we have to understand whenever you read the news headlines where they're attacking some innocent person, you've got to stop and say, wait a second, who's leveling this accusation? And realize that they're the guilty ones and they're blaming the innocent ones. So what do we do and, about um, it, Bill? What do we do about it? We've got about two minutes left. Well, the, the first thing is repent, and when we realize that uh, God controls time, right? A day with the Lord is as a thousand years. So in, in a sense, everything's moving in slow motion compared to how fast God is, right? And, and so the, the, we're the bride of Christ, and every romance Hallmark movie builds up to a decision-making moment, a forsaking of all others and choosing the one. And we're the bride of Christ. So God, I believe, is pushing us, pushing the world to a decision-making moment. Are we? Good? Some people are going to choose the all others. They're going to say, oh, I want to be liked. I want to be friended. I want to be followed. I don't want anybody to say anything bad about me. And others are going to say, all I care about is the one. And this was even seen with Peter. Here he was with Jesus three years, looks Jesus in the eye, tells him he'll never deny him. A couple hours later, he denies Peter's him. with a group around the fire, yes. and they said, you were with Jesus. And he, you can just picture Peter looking around the fire, and everybody's eyeing him. And he says, I never met the guy. Oh, my. Like, that, that's it? You caved that fast? The fear of being pushed out of a group. But then after the resurrection, Peter's filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Sanhedrin said, we told you not to speak in his name again. And yeah. Peter said, it's better to obey God rather and than mankind. Man. So We've got one sudden, minute left, Bill Peter Federer. Has, Peter has a new operating system. He doesn't care what people think. He only cares what God thinks. Ooh, he doesn't so care I what think, people think, but he cares what God thinks. Uh, l let's use that as our springboard to close this, Bill Federer. Do not care what people think, care what God thinks. And when you understand God, you have to understand him through his written word, but also the power of his spirit as well. So when you put those together, my listening friend, you have solutions. And would you say, Bill, that it's really important for us to have community horizontally and community community vertically, and those are really the keys. I, I, I've got about 10 seconds left. Uh, any quick words of closing wisdom, Bill Federer? Um, well, you know, in freshman chemistry class, the teacher has a beaker with a solution and pours in a catalyst that causes a reaction, and some stuff precipitates, floats to the bottom, other stuff gets effervescent and bubbly and floats to the top. 
the time period we're living in is the solution in the beaker. And the crisis of our time period is the catalyst that's poured in. And some people's response is going to pre- precipitate to run away, to hide, deny their faith, even take the mark of the beast. And other people's response is to get effervescent and bubbly. When the church was persecuted, they prayed for more boldness, right? The crisis is the decision-making moment that the good Lord is letting happen to let the, this, the, the division being taken place, so to speak, sort of like a sheep and the goats type thing. And yes. your response to the crisis is revealing outside the true beliefs that you have on the inside. Bill Federer. Thank you for spending some time with us. It's time for us to go. My listening friend, I, you can listen to this over and over and over in the archives as well. But Bill Federer, thank you for giving us some uh, insight for the, the year to come. But also make your stand in God, my listening friend, because he and he alone is the solution. Bill Federer, God bless you. My listening friend, God bless you. And see you next week on Come Together San Diego. God bless you, Bill. Thanks for joining Kaz Taylor and his many friends, including you, for Come Together San Diego. Join us again next week as we explore what unity in the body of Christ sounds like within this county and beyond on Come Together San Diego. Tell a friend, tell a neighbor, tell a co-worker, and then let's all come together San Diego next Saturday from 5 to 7 p.m. on K-Praise. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.